uh, here at City Light. We open the Bible every week. We believe the Bible is the Word of God, and that's why we open it every single week. And as we look at it, we hear the Creator of the universe address our hearts and minds. And so we are walking through the book of Ecclesiastes for the next six weeks, uh, looking at this question of, of what is life and what is life about and the purpose of life. Um, and Ecclesiastes has lots to stay on this. And so we're starting today, brand new series, looking at Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1, the sentences 1 through to 14. Over in the screen behind me, if you're one of these blue uh, church Bibles there at the back, you can grab one next to the cam. But we're reading Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through to 14, and I'll read it for us. It says this, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circus the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they will flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been, what, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is, uh, is what will be, done, will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor would there be any remembrance of latter things to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I have applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given, given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, striving after the wind. Hey guys, uh, my name is Jacob, if I haven't met you, and just want to extend my welcome uh, here, here to church today. It's exciting to be celebrating our fourth birthday, um, and, and just to take stock and to think back uh, over, I guess, the last four years of our life as a church, and just the many, many ways God has been at work in us. And even today, just to be able to look out and see at 11 a.m. The, the building full and hear the building full and, and to, to hear about how we've been able to support some of these organizations, it's just, a, it's just an exciting and encouraging time. Uh, I want to get straight into this book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I'm excited about this. This is my most read book of the Bible. Uh, I love it. I find it uh, interesting and practical and, uh, and, and a lot of the time confusing. But a lot of, I really, I guess, feel like, I, I don't know, I just feel like the author of Ecclesiastes gets it, and I really like that. And I've got this feeling coming to this series. You know that feeling you get when you find like a TV show that's not even on Netflix yet, but it's awesome, and you find it before anyone else, and you get to just sit down with your friend and show them the show, and you're kind of watching them to see if they're like smiling or laughing or whatever, because if they, if they love it, it means you love it more. Um, that's how I'm feeling about Ecclesiastes. And I just remembered though before, only a few weeks ago, I, I showed my girlfriend Sarah a movie that I love, the movie Magnolia. Has anyone seen that? Anyway, I love it. She just got stressed and, and, and saddened by the whole thing. So I'm actually, I guess that's a possibility as to what's going to happen with the book of Ecclesiastes as well. But, um, but hopefully not. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, as some of you might know, there, there's not much I personally enjoy more than actually getting, getting out of Sydney and getting out into nature and into the wilderness and spending a few days out there. And I just wanted to start by sharing with you one of the, in fact, the most physically uncomfortable and the worst night I've ever had. 
And, uh, and it was about this time last year, almost a year ago now, uh, myself and Jamie, who's here somewhere, another guy, Jordan, uh, from church, decided to go on a, a few-day hike to try to get to the most remote part of the Kosciuszko National Park. And I've got a photo of the screen. This photo was literally taken about 10 minutes into this story that I'm about to tell the beginning. We were, um, we, we'd climbed this mountain uh, on the day that we set off with the kind of aim of setting up camp on top of a mountain around sunset and then continuing down this mountain the next day. And, uh, and we got to the top of it right in time, like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, when all of a sudden this crazy ice wind picked up and there was kind of ice coming in the air, there was this fog, there was this wind that was just so full on that we couldn't hear each other. And we realised there was absolutely no way that we were going to be able to get a tent up in this wind. And so we, we decided to start making our way down the mountain, which is what's happening here. You can kind of see the, a lot of this fog around. We couldn't really see a whole... You can't really see that far, but we're, we're quite high up. And we started making our way down this mountain uh, in, in the hope that we can at least get low enough to get some shelter. But, uh, but not long after this, it got dark, and it got dark pretty quickly. And so we realised we don't really have much choice than just to try to set up our camp on the side of this mountain. So we get the tent out... We set it up. It's still about, like, quite literally, like, this steep, and we'd, we've got the tent kind of coming out the side of it. And just as a test, as soon as we set it up, we all got in and realised that it was just sliding. It's, the moment that we there, all three of us were in there, it was like a toboggan and just started going down the hill. <laughs> so we hopped out, and we, we tried making, like, a rock wall to kind of block it from going down. And again, we got in the tent, lay down as if we were going to sleep, and the whole thing just started sliding down, which is a problem because there was a cliff not too much further down from where we were. And so we were faced with, with a choice, and the choice was to sit, to sit on the side of the mountain and wait for the sun to come up, um, which sounded absolutely horrible, um, or to just slowly, in the dark, with our head torches, just try to get lower and find somewhere better. And um, I thought I was sceptical, but the other guys thought it was a great idea, so we decided to keep going down the mountain. So we, we got a little fire to quickly eat some dinner. I cooked a tin of baked beans. Um, I, ate, I, ate, I ate the beans, and... We had some food in our stomach and we were ready to go. Now, about 10.30 at night after... and So we were about still five hours up the mountain, really, to get, to get down to the bottom. And so we started going down and about 10.30, I started to feel the sickest I've felt in my entire life. Like, no exaggeration. I, I, I was getting these... It was dark and it was night, but I was getting these little white dots in my vision. Like, I started seeing, like, little black bits and, and, like, white bits, and it was really, really, really dizzy. My whole body was aching. And I tried to explain this to the guys. I was like, I do not feel at all well. And they were thinking, you know, you've probably just because you're exhausted. We've been walking a long time. Um, just, you've just got to push through. We've, we've just got to get down. And so I couldn't walk, so I just slid on my bottom down <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of metres of rocks to the point that when I, by the time we at the bottom, and this happened to, I think, all of our pants, if you looked at me on the front, I'd look normal, and if I turned around, there'd be, like, nothing there. <laughs> and this whole way down, I was just, like, sick and sick and sick. We got to the, finally got to the bottom, found this little flat, rocky bit where we got the tent up. I went in it and fell asleep straight away. And then an hour later, kind of woke up. And you know that when you wake up and you're already sort of throwing up? I kind of woke up, leaned... I was in the middle for some reason. Leaned over Jamie, who was, just lying, who was still asleep, and started just heaving and throwing up. And then the next day, uh, I didn't have any breakfast, so that was best. And, and for, for a whole other day, just kind of trudged our way down this, this stream to, to the next camp. And when we got there, this, the next night, we decided to cook dinner again. And it was actually daylight this time. And I got my, another tin of baked beans out. I put it on the fire. And then I could see in the light that 
the tin had this lining of plastic that was like melting through the beans. And I realized that the night before, I'd actually eaten a whole tin of like melted plastic. And I'd just poisoned, so been completely poisoned. And I tell that story, and, and I try to do this like once a year, go out and do something like this. And people sometimes say, like, why do you bother? Why, why do you go out? This is, that's not a good way to have a holiday. Just rent a house by the beach. Just, what are you doing? Stupid. And, and the reason is, despite all of that and, and other things that may or may not happen when you, when you get out of the comforts of, of Sydney, there's something about getting away from cars and phones and internet and news and social media and, and noise that I just find so, so refreshing. What I find when I've spent a few days just kind of walking through forests that are, that are older than I am, climbing um, over mountains that have been there before, before people walk the earth, uh, and, and lying awake at night and just looking up at, at the stars and kind of getting this sense that there is just so much in the universe that is just above and beyond us, what I find is starting to happen every single time is that all of these thoughts that are just normally just pressing on my mind, thoughts like how much money is in my bank account right now, or, or I wonder what these people thought of me when, or how I came across earlier, or questions of am I getting enough rest at the moment, or, uh, or maybe am I not doing enough with my life, things about what's the next thing I'm going to buy, or, or what's the next holiday I might go on, uh, all of these thoughts that are normally just kind of in and out of our minds all the time, they just kind of, get, they just kind of stop in light of the fact that we're in a reality that's so much bigger than us and really all of our worries are just so, I guess, non-consequential in the end. And I find that experience. There's another time, that, though, that I've, I think I've been hit with a similar reality, and maybe you can relate, which is in the face of death. I remember when I was uh, in high school, my grandma was dying, and she died quite slowly uh, as she gradually got sicker and sicker with, uh, with breast cancer, and, and every week we'd go and visit her on a Friday afternoon until, until late, um, as she was getting sicker and sicker. And I wanted to, my memory of this time is that uh, I'd get the bus to school every morning. It was just at the time when the first iPod was launched. And as I sat on the bus, like loading Blink-182 CDs into my Walkman, I'd look up and there'd be this ad on the side of the bus that said 10,000 songs in your pocket. And there's just that picture of the white, crisp, original iPod which was at the time gone for however many hundreds of dollars. And I used to sit on the bus every day thinking, I need that iPod, I need it, I need it, I need it. It'll make my life complete. And just the thing I remember, I think, really strongly about my grandma's death is that the morning after she died, I hopped on the bus and suddenly realized this ad that it had so much pull over me just suddenly didn't. There was something about coming face to face with the reality of that life is short and that it's not here forever that means this thing that's been saying, you need this, you need this, you need this, suddenly stopped making sense. And obviously, that, you know, as time went on, I, I got an iPod and I've got more iPods since and iPhones and all these things because day by day, our lives are full of so much noise and distraction that we actually forget the reality that we encounter, whether it's in the face of death or when we go out and experience nature. And the reason I tell you this is because I think above all, this is what the book of Ecclesiastes does. Ecclesiastes is an opportunity to come face to face with reality, to be reminded of a reality that most of the time we forget. And the value of what we're doing in spending six weeks looking at this book, it means that we're going to live lives that reflect reality, not live lives of just cloudy distraction and, and trivial obsessions. So the aim for this afternoon, in the next half an hour or so, is just to walk through the introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a poem and to see what it's revealing, to see, to see what this book that we're going to be looking at for six weeks is all about. 
Now, as we look at this, I reckon you're going to benefit if you have it in front of you. So if you have a Bible um, and open it to Ecclesiastes 1, that's going to be helpful. If you've got a phone with an, with an app with a Bible, you can do that. If you want to walk up the back and grab one of the Bibles up there, like that's not awkward. I'm not worried if you stand up while I'm talking, go and get one. And they'll be on the screen as well. But as we read through this, we just want to be thinking and wrestling with, what is this all about? What is this author trying to communicate to us? And what we're going to see is we see a poem about the vanity of life. So verses 1 to 3 are going to come up on the screen now, which is where we start. And in these verses, really, we get set up for the whole book. Verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? We see in verse 1, this, our author is introduced. It's this guy that's referred to as the, as the preacher. He's also called the son of David, king in Jerusalem, which, which draws to mind from other parts in the Bible the actual son of David, a guy called Solomon, who was this, the most powerful and wise king who had ever lived. This sense that this is, this is the words of a man who has lived a life in which he has seen and observed and experienced everything life has to offer. And his observation is this in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Now this word vanity is really going to be the key to unlocking this book. Depending on what version of the Bible you might have, the one we use at church, it says vanity. You might use the NIV uh, translation of the original Hebrew, which, which instead of vanity, it says meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Uh, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. You might have other versions that use a word uh, absurd, absurd, or maybe even puzzling or puzzling. And the reason for this difference uh, is because the original Hebrew word here is a word havel, which I'm going to use a bit. Uh, what the preacher is saying is havel, havel, everything is havel. And this word havel literally uh, could be translated as mist or vapor or breath. It's this, this idea of this kind of smoky, misty, vapory substance. So he's looking out and he's saying, everything is mist. Everything is a breath. Everything is vapor. It's this, this image of something being fleeting or, or non-permanent maybe or, or hard to grasp. But quite literally he's saying, everything is mist. Our lives are mist. We are a puff of smoke. Our world is a puff of smoke and then it's gone. And so our translators, they jump to words like vanity or meaningless to try to make sense of this. But, you know, you can even write that in your Bible just in the, in the margin. You know, havel equals mist. So that's the first thing I want you to hold in your head. This is what this author is observing. That as he looks around the world, he sees vapor. And then in verse 3, we have another word which is going to help us understand this. Verse 3, uh, it asks a rhetorical question, which is, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's asking a question I'm sure we've all asked at some point, which is, what is the point? What is the point of our lives? What do we get? And the word it uses is this word gain. It's this idea of what do we profit? What do we take away? What do we get? What do we gain? And as we go through the rest of this poem, we're going to see that this actually question is maybe not the right one to ask. When we, we approach a world that is missed and we look for gain, that we come up empty-handed. And the rest of this poem is going to show us, I guess, three ways in which we can know that the pursuit of gain is futile. 
And so the three points we're going to work through this poem is this. Number one, that's not how the world works. Number two, we're never truly satisfied. And number three, time and death erase it all. So first, as we look through the poem, we're going to see that this idea of living to gain and to get is not how the world works. Look with me from verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. We're told to take a step back and look at this world around us that compared to us has been here forever. Compared to the 90 years, if we're lucky, that we get, this, this earth has been here forever. It's been here for billions of years. And if we're waiting for the sun to swallow it up, we're going to be waiting for billions of years more. This world is so much bigger than us. And the author is saying, look around and see how it works. He says, look at how the sun works, right? It just rises and it sets. Every day it does the same thing again and again and again. And despite how many times it does it, it has nothing really to show for it. He says, look at the wind. For millions of years, the wind has been blowing this way, that way, you know, north, south, east, west. It's blowing around and it's blowing and blowing and blowing. And yet it continues. It, it gets nothing out of it. It just goes around and around and around. We see this image of or rivers flowing just constantly. More and more water pouring into the sea. But because of the way that the world works, the sea doesn't just fill up and overflow, but water in the sea evaporates, it gets carried, and then it gets rained on mountains and flows back down the rivers again in this cycle just around and around and around. And just in these three examples, the writer is saying, when you look around, you don't see this kind of progress or this gain. What you see is just repetitive cycles. Now, we are, in our Western worldview, we look at time as just linear, as progress. The Western mindset is one of progress and gain. We're moving forward, right? The world had a beginning, we're moving towards its end, and in the process, we're just going to keep advancing and progressing. We believe that you know, the human race, we've just got to get more and more technologically advanced, more politically advanced, more philosophically advanced. That as a society, we need to get more educated, more happy, more peaceful. And when we bring it down to an individual level, this is how we think of our lives. We think of our lives as a story of gain. When we're born, we have nothing, but we start gaining. We gain an education. We gain a job. We gain money. We gain a spouse. We gain kids. We gain a a, a holiday house and a car and another car and a nest egg for retirement and experiences and holidays. And we know this is our story because when we're not gaining one of these things, we're not feeling like this next step is happening. It stresses us out. And we become bitter and frustrated because our stories that we hold to is one of progress and gain. But all the writer is trying to do here is just say, no, when you look around, that's not how the world operates. The world doesn't play by those rules. And if you look at the, the, the issues we have with our with our environment today, most of them is because there's this clash between our human worldview of, of trying to gain and the fact that that's not how, how the world works. You look at the fact that our, our rainforests are just getting destroyed and cut down and not replenishing, and it's because, despite the fact that they've worked well for so, so many years, people's mindset of approaching things with the question, what can I get? How can I get, make money of this? How can I profit? How can I use this? How is this for me? 
destroys it. The same question of, of how, of how our, our fossil fuels are being exploited, the same thing of how our oceans are being overfished. It's when people come along with one way of looking at things, which is gain, 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 get, 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 and that's not the way the world's meant to be, and we have issues. Creation does not operate according to the principle of gain. That's, that's the, the writer's first observation. But his second one goes deeper, and his second observation, the second reason why living for gain doesn't work, is he says you don't need to look at the world around you at the end of the day. You can actually look into your own experience. And you can see that no matter how much we gain, we're never satisfied. Look with me from verse 8. He writes, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. We don't need to look that far to see that pursuing gain doesn't work. When we look to ourselves, we see that no matter what we try to gain in life, we're never truly satisfied. And verse 8 says this brings about a weariness. This is why everything's so exhausting. Just like no matter how much water flows into the sea, the sea is not full. No matter how much we experience, we ourselves are not full. Just think, and he says, what he says in it, just think about how your eyes work. Your eyes don't, don't get full of seeing. Think of, think of all the movies and the trees and the flowers and the sunsets and the photos and the TV shows and the cars and the people and colors and words your eyes have taken in in your life. And yet there's room for so, so much more. Think about your ears. Think about how many conversations and songs and ads and airplanes and dogs barking and footsteps and laughter and crying and yelling and whispering you absorb without your ears just kind of closing over and saying enough, right? He's saying we, we have this capacity for more, more, more. But the issue with this isn't around our senses. The issue with this is with our desires. No, no matter, everyone has this experience, I'm sure, of, of having something in your life that you just longed for and just wanted and desired for. And if it's a material thing that you've saved up for and you've bought, just to have it become something which is just worthless to you. It didn't bring the satisfaction. C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, an, uh, an author from quite a few decades ago now, wrote this about our desires. He says, Most people, if they'd really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There's something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. He's saying that our desires, no matter what we give them, will always want more. And this is how materialism and consumerism thrive. So take the fashion industry, right? They, they know that we always want more, that we will not be satisfied. And so whereas a few decades ago, 
the fashion industry, you know, they'd come up with their, with their, their winter collection and, and their summer collection. Um, that, you know, every six months what you had might become old. These days, the fashion industry operates according to 52 micro-seasons. So that quite literally, a piece of clothing that you buy today will be old and, and, and I guess, seen as obsolete in a week's time. We see companies just continuing to modify and change their products to feed our appetite for novelty. Now, the minimalism movement, uh, I guess, identifies that we aren't satisfied with stuff that there's no correlation between having more things and having more satisfaction and happiness. In fact, the opposite's often true. Uh, they're saying, you know, we, we work longer hours to get bigger houses so we can fit in more possessions and then work even harder to, to pay for the upkeep and the increasing bills and insurance premiums required to maintain our multiple vehicles and this lifestyle and this empire of possessions we build for ourselves. And the documentary, The Minimalists, uh, follows the lives of a few guys who are on the quest to try to live without all this stuff and spread this message of living with less. Uh, by suggesting, you know, cutting down your possessions to what you can fit in a bag or to limiting yourself to only earn, owning 50 things, to live in smaller houses, all this kind of stuff, which is really appealing in principle and it's gaining traction. But I, I watched the documentary and it, there's some things in it that are good, but... The issue I had with it is that these guys are still just super rich. And, and they say that one of the guys like, I only, I only own these three shirts. But the shirts that he owns are just are designer shirts. And their apartments have less clutter than most people, but they've been designed by these famous architects that mean they can just have the best use of space. They say they don't have as much furniture, but the furniture they have is this amazingly creative designer furniture. And, 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 and they, they do this by, by working this life as in some creative job where they can work from their MacBook Pro at any cafe in the world. And so they're, they're offering, what they're offering isn't a solution um, to being dissatisfied with stuff. They're, they're just offering another thing which is unattainable for most. It's going to spark our desire for something new, for some sort of change. It doesn't address the actual issue, which is that no matter what happens, we, we find ourselves unsatisfied. We can't escape it. We live according to the belief that some new thing gaining some new job or some new relationship or new possession or experience will actually satisfy us, but time and time again we see that that's not so. No matter what we try to gain, we're not satisfied, we're not content. That's his second observation. The third observation that this poet, that this, this teacher writes is, is maybe the most confronting, uh, which is to say that in the end, time and death erase any gain that we might have anyway. Verse 11 says, There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. At the end of the day, the problem with gain is that it is all just relative. There might be some points in our life where we have more and other points we have less. Sometimes we feel like we're succeeding and sometimes we feel like we're we're failing. Other times we're winning, other times we feel like we're losing. But in the end, the same thing happens to us all. A hole is dug, they throw dirt on top of us, and then the rest of the world moves on. From dust we came to dust we go, we arrive in this world naked, we leave naked, and the world just keeps on spinning. And a day will come when no one will know who we are, what we did, or anything about us. Uh, I'm working at the moment as a teacher today down at Balmain Primary School, and I was in a class this week where the kids were pulling apart 
um, an old stereo so they can learn how to use pliers and screwdrivers and that kind of thing. And, and one of them kind of opened the cassette part of the stereo, and I said to him, do you, know, do you know what this bit's for? And he said, no, what? And I said, oh, that's where, you, that's where the cassette goes. And he just looked at me kind of blankly and said, what's a cassette? And I was like, oh. So I was like, to the rest of the class, does anyone here know what a cassette is? And not a single kid had any idea what a cassette was. Now, I Googled it. Some guy in the 60s in Belgium invented the cassette and, to his knowledge, was doing the most incredible thing for audio recording that's ever going to happen. But within only half a century, it's just forgotten. It's nothing. It's gone. He will be forgotten. One day, the cassette will be completely forgotten, even amongst us. When these kids are adults, no one's going to know what a cassette is, right? But, and that was a big thing. Like, he's probably pretty chuffed when he made the cassette. But my point is that, that one day, no matter what we do, maybe some of us will be quicker than others, but we're going to be forgotten. Our gains aren't permanent. Our riches and our homes, our futures, they're not permanent. We can't stop death when it decides to come, and we can't stop even now the fact that time is just going to keep on rolling through. No matter how advanced we get as a society, we're not going to be able to stop time. Now, we often just think of this in the abstract, but just to, just to stop and think, one day we will not be here. And so back to, the, to this preacher's um, initial question, which is, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the answer is, well, firstly, the world doesn't really operate according to the principle of gain anyway. It just keeps going. Uh, on one level, we don't really even gain now because no matter what we do gain for ourselves, we, we might gain stuff, but we don't really ultimately gain satisfaction. And at the end of the day, we take nothing with us. Time and death wash over everything. So he concludes in verse 14 by saying, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. He says, considering it all, all is a veil. All is just vapor. And the chasing of getting stuff in this life is as crazy as trying to go and catch the wind. That's what he's saying. Now, the question is, what do we do with this reality? If what he's saying is true, and I'd argue that it is, what do we do with it? I think there are two main ways that people in our society deal with this truth. Uh, and, that, and that's through either distraction or despair. Firstly, distraction. Uh, we do not want to believe that all of our hard work and study and effort and energy is for things that won't last. That doesn't feel good. We don't like to think that the things we're spending our energy on aren't going to satisfy, and we don't like to think about the fact that death is coming and that one day we'll be forgotten. And so the main thing I guess we try to do with this is just forget about it. We, as people living in Sydney now, should be the least busy people on the planet. We have machines to do everything for us. Machines wash our clothes and our dishes. Machines clean our houses. Machines keep us warm and cool us down when we're too hot. We've got machines to get us anywhere we need to be in, in a short amount of time. You've got computers which can do literally anything. Like, you can get anything you want that exists on the planet at your doorstep using a computer within a few weeks tops. And yet, when you ask someone, hey, how was your week? So, so often the answer is really busy. Now, sure, there's going to be times where just life's busy, but, but surely not to the extent in which we make ourselves busy. We can't help but be doing something. 
When we wake up in the morning, we turn on the news or check our social media or turn on the radio or the TV to start filling ourselves from the very start with just thoughts and ideas and stimulation. We, we, we fill our weeks with stuff. We, we make sure our nights are planned out. And, and if we're having a night at home, we make sure there's something to watch on TV so we don't just kind of sit there and do nothing. We have to be stimulated. We make sure our, our weekends are full. And this is, why, this is why Sydney has such a big partying and drinking culture. So we, we can be out and we can be busy and we can be doing stuff at all times. And, and we set our, our lives up so that hopefully this, this thought that maybe, maybe it's all for nothing can't really get to us. Louis C.K., the comedian, um, uh, in an interview with Conan O'Brien, when he's talking about mobile phones, says the reason why, why people keep crashing their cars over something as small as a mobile phone is because when you're sitting in a car and you're alone and that little feeling comes along that maybe you actually are alone in, in more ways than just being alone in the car and that maybe, maybe everything you've been doing is actually kind of pointless and, and meaningless... We get freaked out, and so we, we reach for the nearest thing, it's the phone, and we text someone or, or go on Facebook or whatever to keep that thought away. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal says, uh, I think he puts it well, when he says, we run heedlessly into the abyss after putting something in front of us to stop us seeing it. I remember a few years ago, I was on a bus on a rainy day like today, and I was looking out the window and I saw a pedestrian crossing the road and then saw that a car was going to hit them, and they were going to get hit by this car, and they were okay, which is why I can tell the story, but I, I saw this pedestrian, he, they, it was a, a woman, she looked over, saw the car was flying towards her, and got her umbrella, and held it in front of the car, <laughs> and then got knocked over the top of the car, and then she was okay, amazingly, but, 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 the, but the instinct to stop an oncoming car with an umbrella is absolutely mad, and yet what, what Pascal says is, you know, we're, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're running towards a cliff, and our, and our best solution is to kind of put something in front of us so we don't see what we're doing. It doesn't work. We, so we, we distract ourselves, we busy ourselves, whether it's with family or, or work or with TV or food or a social life or video games, we, we numb ourselves to this feeling that maybe there's nothing really to be gained. And that's one way I think people deal with it. The other, the other is just through despair. Um... And this is the one I lean more naturally towards. It's just, it's just to kind of look out and see, well, if everything's meaningless, you know, we're hopeless. There's no point trying to invest in anything or do anything. It's to think, you know, life's a cruel joke. I didn't ask to be here. Um, and you look around at all the idiots filling their life with dumb stuff, and you think, oh, how, how dumb are they, right? And it's just this sense of, yeah, like, <laughs> life is meaningless, woe is me. And, um, and I remember, like, I think I peaked this when I was between 16 and 18 years old. Um, and I remember when I was 16 watching the movie Train Spotting, which is this story of this group of friends who just, and, and just the destruction that, that heroin brings to their lives. Um, and the movie opens with the main character um, kind of narrating this kind of summary of his life. And he says this, it'll come on the screen. He says, Choose life, choose a job, choose a career, choose a family. Choose a big television. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays, and electrical tin openers. Choose good health, low cholesterol, and dental insurance. Choose fixed interest mortgage repayments. Choose a starter home. Choose your friends. Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. 